Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Object Class Throwdown, the show where your hosts, A Random Day and Captain Kirby, argue at each other and call it a podcast. Inspired by listener feedback tonight, we decided to apply our knowledge for this episode, each of us discussing an article he liked, but the other didn't. I am going to be defending SCP-5579 Boba Row by T. Rutherford. Kirby, what will you be defending? Article that I brought that I want to essentially just lap my praises upon is SCP-5005 Lamplight by Tufto. The way we're going to go about this is, I'm going to start by saying what I like about 5579. Kirby is going to offer his thoughts. And then the conversation will go from there until we eventually end up talking about SCP-5005. Does that work for you? That works for me. Perfect. I'm going to go do a piece-by-piece analysis of SCP-5579. To start off with, I will admit that I am not the biggest fan of the ACS header at the top. It doesn't really offer that much useful information, but it's just something that's like easy to skim. You can just see Euclid be done with it. It just feels a little bit unnecessary. But the special containment procedures are pretty cool. We've got Project Bitter Yucca. That's one Chekhov's gun that we want to learn about off the bat. And then we've got UO Class First Contact Suppression Campaign. We've got Aliens. I really like the pacing of this article, actually. It gives us a couple of interesting hooks to sink our teeth into. And then the description immediately gets to the punch. Tapioca is because of aliens. Tapioca is an alien parasite that makes more tapioca. But for whatever reason... Tapioca can't parasitize anything on Earth. It feels a little bit like background exposition, and honestly, I would probably have downvoted at this part. And then it keeps going. We've got this come down that tries to add character to the aliens, but doesn't really do it. They sound more like Rick and Morty aliens. You have failed. You cannot sustain our young. It doesn't sound that dangerous or threatening. It sounds kind of goofy. And honestly, this is a weird fiction site. I would like to see more weird thinking aliens on the site. And then there's a final, final addendum that I honestly think you could have gotten rid of the uh, alien speech addendum and had this addendum instead. That's just, looks like the alien is going extinct. We have some of it in deep freeze. And then we get to the second half of the article. Suddenly things get a whole lot better. And for once, I'm actually kind of okay with this. Normally, I don't like when articles do that whole, the first half of the article is a fake or a fake out. But in this case, it works because it's still relevant to the important material. It's window dressing that helps to contextualize a very cool character piece. Like, we've got the huge shift. We've got this fancy M, C, and D purple CSS going on, which is a far cry from the red, black, white main site CSS. And it also helps that the first line is purple. The use of color on this page is great. It's a huge shift from what came before it, and I'm automatically hooked. Especially because now it's political intrigue between Marshall, Carter, and Dark and the Foundation about alien tapioca. Then things really speed up, and that's where I really, that's another thing I really like about this article. The article manages to keep itself moving forward at all times because we've got the Chekhov's guns at the beginning, we've got the alien tapioca to keep us wanting to learn more, we've got this come down about the mean aliens. We want to know how we beat them. Oh, and then it turns out we've already beat them. So the first half of the article actually manages to avoid getting bogged down under its own weight, despite its otherwise bland subject material. And the reason I don't feel irritated by this whole digression about the alien tapioca 
is because one, alien tapioca is an interesting con high concept, and two, because the alien tapioca and what was going on on the first half of the article makes the character piece in the second half click perfectly. There's this great dialogue between 055 and Iris Dark. It has a similar problem to the first half of the tale, actually. There's this exposition from Iris Dark that is trying to hype up the aliens as a threat, but it really didn't need to. Descriptions like handed the keys to the galaxy like it was a Cadillac from Daddy makes the description of the aliens sound dumber than I think the piece should. It's a little bit too goofy for my tastes. That's fine too, mainly because Iris Dark exudes style. She's a very interesting character to watch. Really, she's the reason to read this piece and she's the reason I like this piece so much. She has this fantastic villainous monologue. She's a deeply wealthy, deeply cultured, deeply hedonistic monster. She's a rich psycho who is exactly the kind of villain we would expect from Marshall, Carter, and Dark. It's disturbing, stylish, and feels just over the top enough to be exactly the sort of thing that the obscenely wealthy would do. One other reason that I like this depiction of Marshall, Carter, and Dark so much, besides a really strong villainous monologue and a really great villain, there was this trend for a while among the site to depict Marshall, Carter, and Dark as these like bumbling boomers that were kind of stupid. That was always kind of not that funny, even though we live in a Donald Trump world. I like this depiction of Marshall, Carter, and Dark because it brings them back to their roots as a bunch of super rich monsters. I'm not going to deny that 5579 is flawed. It has problems with exposition, but the whole piece flows much better than I really would have expected it to, and it helps the fantastic character piece shine. I'm going to start with essentially just a general response to, to what you said. Going back to something that you said before, the notice and the response for, um, of the aliens, that little section makes them sound goofy. Before I dive into my criticisms of the article, I want to actually note, I think that the fact that they come off as goofy here is not just like purposeful, but like the better way for them to come off given what comes next. I agree. I like the idea of having aliens with more just strange and weird communicatory or... Honestly, I don't even think there needed to be communication from the aliens. I think the same expositional tone used to just describe like, oh, this is the last dying gasp of some alien race. I think that's more serious. It would help to sell Iris Dark as a villain even more. It's still a little bit goofy because we are still talking about like alien tapioca, but it being the last of its kind and Iris Dark eating it for that fact really pushes her villainous motivations over the top. So to me, there's two main facets to the article. The villainous nature of eating the last remnants of a species and the emotion of overcoming an entire another species presented within um, Iris' Dark's monologue. But there's another aspect which is earlier on in her monologue, the idea that these are pathetic parasites. Like, these aren't just your run-of-the-mill aliens who came to Earth and just failed to colonize. No, no, no. These are stuck-up aliens, which is why the phrase, you are children of a whore galaxy, reinforces that idea that they're spoiled brats. It's the last cry of some child that didn't get their way. I like that idea. Maybe not necessarily the exact execution. I like that idea though. I love the idea of pathetic bratty parasites. I love the idea of consuming them as a final act of fuck you, we've beaten you. Framing it all in terms of tapioca is a fairly comedic hook that you can carry throughout the rest of the piece. These are the things that I enjoy about it. What gets me is largely in the execution. 
because we have this SCP, and then we use list pages to go to another offset that is essentially just a tail through and through. I am not one to put a lot of boundaries on how much you can format screw an article. I personally have a lot of thoughts on like the best ways to use list pages. To me, the fact that it uses list pages and then it didn't immediately go to another SCP article, that, I wouldn't say entirely took me out of the story, but that made me more cognizant of the fact that this was a piece of writing due to the dramatic shift in formats that was used midway through the article. So when I started reading this bright purple and orange Halloween tale, as far as color palette is concerned, my attention was actively drawn to the fact that, oh, this is not the piece of writing that I was reading anymore, and I was reminded that it was a piece of writing. Which isn't a death sentence on its own for me, if I notice that I'm reading a piece of writing that isn't going to immediately mean that I dislike it, but I think that the fact that it made this dramatic shift made me more aware and more susceptible to being annoyed by some of the things it does later on. Because as ARD described it, the voice in the tale I do admit is superb. But at the end of the day, it's a justification for Iris Dark to give a villainous monologue. There's not a lot of character development for O5-5. There's like a little bit, but really O5-5 is serving the same role as any interviewer does in an interview log with an anomaly. A lot of times they have just enough personality to not be boring, and really they exist to let the anomaly do their thing in the interview, and that's how this reads to me. And by proxy of that, the monologue, while very charismatically voiced, at the end of the day is just exposition. A very engaging piece of exposition, but very directly expository. Okay, now you're just explaining to me the tapioca that I wish was shown to me. And that's why I actually do like the two little lines that we get from the alien civilization, because that's the only point that we're really shown how pathetic the, the tapioca aliens are. The rest of it is given to us in this monologue, which is less showing us and more just telling us in a very, I would say it's as engaging of a way to tell me about the tapioca as you can, but it's still telling me, and I still felt like it was telling me at the end of the day. And the same goes for the monologue part at the end. We're not being shown the power dynamic b between the tapioca and the humans. We're really just being told about it and how it is going to, to manifest itself in this banquet. And so a lot of the fact that this tail section, while the, the voices in it are very, very well pronounced, it still has the issue of being a lot of telling. It's a lot of exposition. Being very direct with the reader about the ideas that you want to convey rather than taking me through an arc to get me to that point. You've just brought me to the point and said, look at this cool idea I have, which might work well for some people, but for me, I like to see ideas in action rather than just being told about the idea very directly. And that's like my big thing with this piece. The tail half is a framing device so we can get these two well-written but still pieces of exposition. And the fact that we have to jump here from an SCP rather than maybe start here, or that we don't go into an interview log, not that saying it, putting it in an interview log would have fixed this, but if this wasn't an interview log, there's a chance that I wouldn't have noticed how expository it was. It makes use of a format screw in a way that I didn't feel was fully justified in-universe. It's justified more at a narrative level, but the fact that it's not justified in-universe and the fact that it was very noticeable at the narrative level 
And then the fact that I was somewhat drawn out of the narrative a little bit then carried into my, I would say, intolerance for the fact that this is extremely expository. There's not a lot of change that happens over the course of the tale portion of it. Things are described to the reader and they're described to the O5, but like there's not much of a conflict that is overcome. It's just more description. And that's my big issue here. If you're going to attempt to draw me in at least with these ideas, I much prefer to see them in action than to be just told about them directly. Because this piece, it has a little bit of a narrative to it, but the main pull of it is its ideas and not necessarily any conflict, struggle, or arc that those ideas come from. The characters, while very uh, multifaceted, are still static and there's no real change in the status quo by the end. So if I'm not engaged and if I'm not feeling anything from the powerless parasite and the consume the weak ideas, even though I like them in theory, if I'm not feeling anything from them, to me that means that the piece could have been executed a lot better and that it's more or less missed its mark. What do you think the mark of the piece is? In my opinion, it's to showcase the monstrous way that Iris Dark perceives herself and invite the reader to envision themselves taking part in that. I would say that, at least to me, that was kind of enraptured in the um, consume the weak idea. The idea that Marshall Carter and Dark, specifically Iris Dark, are really enjoying consuming this utter failure of, a, of an intergalactic race. We have the voice of it, but there's not an arc that allows us to arrive there. I don't feel like I was on a journey to get to the point where I'm with Iris eating this tapioca. The big thing there is that I'm just told what that feeling is. I'm very directly told what that idea is supposed to be, rather than being brought on a journey of arriving at that feeling. It felt like I was already at the end point. I was just having what that end point feels like described to me. I think that Iris Dark is multifaceted and well-rounded. I just think that in this piece, Iris Dark is static. As a reader, watching a static character describe their feelings and intent does not ring as true to me as watching a dynamic character arrive at that final moment. Okay, I see. Iris Dark starts and ends as like a well-fleshed-out, well-realized character, but she doesn't experience any change. You would have liked to see her multifaceted nature include some kind of character development for you to get behind. That's one thing that I would have liked to see. There is also a possibility that you don't need to do it through Iris Dark, but like through... You just want someone in this article to have character development. I want... So it was like, if I could see someone develop as a character, or if these ideas could be conveyed to me without it being exposited at me. I think that the fact that Iris Dark is static does not help this. I do not... I don't think that making Iris Dark dynamic is the only way to fix it. Her being static contributes to it. But also at the end of the day, she is just expositing the feelings and ideas that she has to 05-5 and thus the reader. And that makes the ideas still feel less impactful. They probably should have. It's funny that these are some of the exact same criticisms I leveled at SCP-5005. But to speak to this final point, the reason I'm not forced into like reconsidering how I approach the prose from the SCP perspective I'm like so inured to people trying to shift up the format and like pull the rug out from underneath me. I just don't even blink when I see this stuff. I'm more engaged by the shift because I want to see if there's a point to it, but it doesn't change the way I view the piece. 
The criticism that I have with this, with regard to how it plays with format and how that playing with format impacts my reading of the article, is very similar to essentially the main complaint I will continue and will forever levy at 5555. Hmm. There's a lot of parts of that article that aren't even trying to be an SCP. And so it makes me more conscious of a lot of the writing decisions that are made there. The difference is that the, the urgency and immediacy is upped a lot more by virtue of the first person epistolary notes. So that works to draw me in a lot better than what I am is very engaging voice, but at the end of the day, it's just a voice. Like the tension and the stakes are not as urgent. I really appreciate like format series when, when I feel like it flows very nicely with the piece. Here, it just felt like a very sudden jerk from SCP Detail which I remember when I was talking to T. Rutherford about this piece that this started as this tale and he realized that the best lead-in was an SCP. And I appreciate that, but I also know that that idea doesn't work as well for me because it's justified only at the narrative level. Yeah, that's fair. I think I'm more willing to give that kind of thing a pass than you are. So you've entertained me about 5579 for almost half an hour now. So in exchange, I will let you gush on about 5,005 for 30 minutes, and then I will offer my pithy criticisms. All right, 5,005. I'm strapping in. I really like this article. I'm probably not going to go piece by piece like ARD did with 5579, just because it's, it's longer and that would take me a lot longer time to go piece by piece through it. I will give a very brief overall summary, which will include spoilers. So if you have not read this article, just go do it. So uh, 5005 is a settlement called Lamplight. It's known for this large tendril that emits light that hangs over the settlement, and that's why it is called Lamplight. The article opens up saying there's this strangeness about the fact that the tendril casts light on the settlement, but once you go beyond that light, there's this non-matter. It's a large expanse past the light, but no one is really sure about what that expanse holds, what the, the substance is there. They call it the Mahi Loam, but they don't even know why they call it that. It's just the name that was given to it. That's the anomaly in a nutshell. It is a settlement that is underneath this tendril of light, and the beyond is effectively just unknown. Once it begins with that, the article giving us a history, cultural orientation of the town. The first section brings up two important characters. The founder of Lamplight, Jean-Antoine Delacroix, who is a poet. And the fact that uh, he is a poet is kind of important because a lot of the residents of Lamplight are artists, poets, writers, creative types that come to Lamplight for a combination of the culture of the community and essentially to express themselves in their writing. And then the other character that's introduced very early on is a researcher, Ramirez. Tufto does a thing in this article that I do in my own articles and I love seeing in any article, which is he entwines essentially a, the character arc of Ramirez coming to Lamplight and learning about Lamplight, developing their own relationship to the anomaly with the article also giving the reader more information about Lamplight. And then the parts with Ramirez, her interviews, then play off of the new information that we learn about Lamplight as readers, and they sort of feed off each other in a nice way, and we as the readers kind of get to watch Ramirez grow and develop almost as a proxy for the reader, but uh, given twists and turns closer to the end, it's obvious that they aren't supposed to be just a stand-in for the reader. They're more of their own character that goes off and does their own thing. We get information about the history of the town. We have the idea about the structure of the society. Talk about the culture around arts there and why people come to Lamplight. 
some people try to come for the mystery are coming for there for the wrong purpose. You should come there to enjoy the area and to be there for the art. At least that's what some of the residents say. We have a section on how people react to being in Lamplight because one of the things about it is that it makes you live longer. There is a talk of future research into the found, one of the founder's poems about the town. Towards the end of the piece, Ramirez effectively goes missing. She hasn't reported back for a while. Someone goes to her room in Lamplight and they find her stuff strewed about. And she has not gone entirely insane, but she has become a mess mentally. And someone, they tried to bring her back, but before they really do recall her from her post, she leaves Lamplight to just go into the Mahi alone. And then from here, we see the last log from Researcher Ramirez as she treks into the Mahi loam. And she goes far enough, and she looks up. One of the very early answers to what is the tendril and lamplight, they are given all these possibilities, and one of them is the dead corpse of an anglerfish ship from an old galactic race. And lo and behold, the light of lamplight is hanging from an anglerfish. She comes to that realization, and her last words are, the knight does not give such easy answers. One motif that is very prevalent throughout the entire piece is on like light and fire, the contrast between light areas and dark areas, not necessarily as good and evil, but like as light and dark. You have this town and a lot of ideas about it enshrouded in mystery and people looking for answers in the idea of light as the things you can see entwined with like the allure of mystery to creatives, how people look for answers that might not be. Not all mysteries are best answered is kind of the thesis of the piece. And you see that through Ramirez constantly chasing this down only to come to what is to her probably the most unsatisfying answer, but to me is a wonderful encapsulation of the idea that no, not every question needs an answer. The, another aspect of this, which I didn't go into a lot of detail about is there's a lot of world building here. There's a lot of detail about Lamplight and its residents and its culture, which I think is really great that's honestly been my biggest sticking point with Lamplight. I think that Lamplight is two very different, very good pieces of fiction that have not been properly uh, meshed together. Because on the one hand, we've got this fantastic like Pathfinder setting. Lamplight is fantastically well realized, but like so much of the world that is described in this article is insignificant to the main story. And as a reader, staying invested in this world because of the main story, I'm really disappointed that so much of this stuff, like all the poets who came before, we're talking to like Jean Mumir, but we never learn anything about him besides the fact that he's a poet and he talks really nicely. The entire section about cultures and festivals, it's there and then it never comes up again. It's a lot of world building that is like existing on its own and not being related to the mystery of Lamplight and the characters that I am attached to. The story is being moved forward by action that is exclusively happening in this tavern and like recordings found in this tavern. The whole world of Lamplight is basically not explored within the story. It's just fleshed out on its own via exposition dump after exposition dump. And I'm disappointed that that's how it delivers its exposition. So, so I agree that the, a lot of the world building is done via exposition. One of the reasons why I give this uh, more of a pass than I do the exposition I find in 5579. The 5579, it does its exposition in, in a tailed piece of dialogue, which to me makes it jump out much more as a monologue and as exposition. 
Here, at least in the SCP article, it doesn't read as much like that because the framing as an academic paper makes it feel much more consistent with what I would expect from the format that it's written in. I won't say that it's not expository, but at least to me, the world building is engaging on its own. A lot of the world building, while it's not immediately related to the plot, it's very deeply tied to a lot of the thematic points that are brought up throughout the piece. Namely, there's the light motif that it comes back to a lot, but then there's also the motif that this place isn't about the answer to the mystery, it's about the journey and the people and the things you discover along the way that have nothing to do with the answer. I say this because a lot of the, even the festival and the way that Lumiere talks, a lot of the ideas in the world building are built around the idea that what Ramirez is doing is absurd and that she should stop and smell the flowers. I'm not a fan of a story whose moral is you should have enjoyed the story more. When the story itself is asking me to engage with elements outside of itself that it describes very offhanded. For example, all the way to the beginning, it's talking about stuff like neo-Austrian like birthing centers and like horse culling centers. And that's interesting stuff, but it's never brought up again. The exposition, a lot of it feels very superficial because it's describing stuff that you can't really describe that well in short paragraphs of text, especially the culture and festival sections. They work great as building material for your own story, but they're not engaging me in the story of the SCP. They are external elements that I would appreciate a lot more if they meshed with the story. But they aren't, and so what happens is that I'm reading two different things, and I end up having to break between exposition dump unrelated to the story and story, like you had to do with 5579. While I agree that a good chunk of the world building that we see is not immediately plot related, and rather is thematically related to the, the story, I think it's still incredibly important that it's there, because we are also following Ramirez as a character. Because Ramirez is also searching for this mystery. And a large point of the article is Ramirez is tunneling in on the mystery and its answers rather than just enjoying and exploring Lamplight as a place. Rather than looking at it from the point of a thesis to apply to a reader, if you look at it from the point of view of Ramirez and the things that people are telling Ramirez, it's very difficult to get across the breadth of opportunity and cultural depth that she's missing without telling the reader those things. There is a world in here, and the fact that Ramirez is missing it is a large part of the point. It's a large part of the thesis of the piece and the thematic through line. The point is that Ramirez is missing all the stuff that people stay in Lamplight for, and by proxy of that, you see by the end of the article, it starts driving her nuts. She's not keeping it together as she keeps tunneling in on the, the poems of Delacroix, of the mystery of the, the tendril of light. Like, these things start to get to her. Lumiere explicitly says this, but then there's this implication by this, all this other stuff in the article that there is so much else to do. There's so much else to talk about. There's so much else to explore that her obsession with everything that's not that is what is causing her to essentially break down and by the end of the article just trudge out into the mahi loam herself. It's still not engaging to me because all this world building, all it's doing is beating me over the head with the same point over and over again. It's not about the destination, it's about the journey. From like a standpoint as a story, all these world building asides are hurting the pacing, especially because a lot of the details that are described end up completely unrelated anyways. 
It's not like in Moby Dick where at least when Ishmael was going off on tangents, they were always like somehow could be tied back to the white whale. But 5005, yeah, there's a ton of stuff out there. Ramirez is missing out on a ton of stuff out there. But it's never showing us what stuff out in that world is missing. It's just telling us, oh, she's missing out on all these great things. I'm not satisfied, especially when I really want to follow Ramirez's descent and her interactions with these interesting characters and this world. We only end up talking to two people and like hearing one poem. I feel that it doesn't work from a story perspective because there's a ton of extra world building that isn't really relating to the story and isn't reinforcing any themes besides stop and smell the roses. And it's not able to evoke the emotions that it should be, especially because these descriptions feel fairly superficial to me because I'm never given the chance to be a part of them. I want to challenge one premise that you said that there's no relationship between the dumps and the interview parts of the story because I agree that they're not immediately related plot-wise. I still say though that the, the two interviews that we have play off of the information that is established beforehand. Not each individual detail is brought up again in the interview, but like in the, in the history part, the discussion of Delacroix is important as essentially a primer to the interview that follows because a lot of it follows Delacroix. So sure, the exact details in here are not immediately plot-related, but there's some background in here that primes you for the interview later on. I would also argue that the part with culture, since we discuss the ways that people write and create art about Lamplight, that plays into the interview that then follows. Again, not every single detail is brought up in there, but a lot of the ideas about the kind of motifs brought across, the way that people write about the area and that that's important to the area. And then essentially in the interview itself, the author is talking about his own work, which will at some level relate to the ideas expressed in the primer of before it. The one section that I will say is a little bit more detached from the story is the structure and society portion, but I will argue that that portion still is important insofar as establishing the light and dark motifs, giving an idea of culture and community to Lamplight. It, it creates a very established diversity amongst the community of Lamplight through the idea of the different districts. And then it also brings together both the communal aspect of Lamplight as well as the light and dark motifs in the festival. I will admit this part is less immediately plot related, but there's still important motifs that are brought off there. But there's still fairly large sections of exposition that do then play into, and I would say enrich the parts of the story that you consider to be just moving, like actually moving the plot along. The culture and society section is where I keep coming back to. From a thematic standpoint, it is the centerpiece of the article. There's all this amazing stuff happening in Lamplight being caused by the wider universe. And then we immediately after get the interview log about people ignoring all that, focusing on the writing. All these ideas are being sent at us so fast that none of them have time to really stick around with the reader. Because by the time we've finished from like the Kievan district, we've gotten down to the Nomad district, We've gotten down to all this discussion about festival proceedings and the fire and the meat. Then we get like SCP-5005's place in the canon of literature. But like the only literature that matters is the poem by Jean-Edouard Delacroix. All this other stuff that the piece is telling us Ramirez is ignoring and how tragic it's ignoring. None of that is really there. What's really there is the descriptions of like despair and solitude. All that is front and center. 
and all the stuff that is like what you get if you don't pursue that kind of misery and solitude is only briefly glanced upon. It's not like described well enough in the story to be evocative in the reader's mind. I'm going to nitpick at one small thing. You say you didn't have enough time to live with some of the ideas. I can kind of see that in like the description of the districts. It is a little rapid fire, at least given the scope of and how detailed each district is. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think that dwelling too long on it would add to bloat. But do you think that you don't spend enough time in the festival to really live in that moment? Because at least to me, that's a scene that I don't think you'd want to draw out any longer. And I also think paints a pretty... It's a fantastic scene. And even then, it's only really, it's related to the story from like a thematic perspective. It never comes up as a moment for the characters to interact with or a way for them to be a part of the bigger world. One other place that I feel that it's a missed opportunity is in the culture section. Because it's talking about like all the literary circles and all the poems and the novels and like the literary residents. It talks about a bunch of stuff that we don't see. There's a lot of bits in here that exist mainly to make the world bigger, but they aren't touching the main plot. The characters aren't interacting with them. It's like we've got two worlds going on. We've got the bigger universe that Lamplight is a part of, and then we've got the universe that's just the characters at the end. Those two spheres do not interact at all. All this world building isn't doing anything for the characters because their entire world as it is, is just like their interactions at the end. If Ramirez did interact with the plot points brought up in the world building, even just like a small smattering of them, then that would pretty objectively take away from the idea that she's so tunneled on this mystery, right? To me, that is the problem. It feels like I'm reading two very different ways of presenting story. I end up shifting gears between here is a story that is happening and here is a description of a world around these characters. And it feels like the characters in the story that I am following are not affected by the detours into the outside world. It's not connecting those two pieces together. The, the main criticism from my, how I understand it is that the, the thematic connections between the exposition and like the character development and the, and the character moments that we see is not engaging enough for you to justify their own existence. Yes, exactly. Most of the world building in the article was not detailed and evocative enough for me to become engaged in the setting that the article is trying to present. It's saying there's a lot of this stuff and expecting me as a reader to imagine it for myself, but it's spending most of its time in and around the inn, the setting that is described the most richly with the most intriguing characters. It feels like the most realized part of the setting, ironically enough. The tavern and the room where all these people were staying and walking, all those spaces feel way more rich, detailed, and fleshed out than all the other parts of world building in the article. I'm not sure I entirely disagree with the idea that the tavern is the most well-realized part of the article. What I find strange is that a lot of the exposition just isn't physical locations. Like, sure, it is actually a place that you spend a lot of time in, but the only other, like, sections of the exposition that are going to give you anything physical is the districts, which, again, are kind of rapid fire, but that's largely in my head to deal with the large expanse. And then there's the festival, and so everything else is not going to give you a setting that, like, a, a, a physical setting that's going to feel more enriched, because it's not about the physical setting. It's about the ideas and culture that are inlaid in the area. Like, in a perfect world, those wouldn't be there, but I still like the article a lot in spite of my criticisms, especially because a lot of them are similar to, like, your criticisms of 5579, which I enjoy quite a bit. 
if the world building doesn't grab you, then like I can get not really feeling the article. I think that the world building, even if it's not immediately plot related, it still contributes to the article. If you just cut X amount of world building from the article, then that would remove, in my opinion, X amount of feeling that Ramirez is tunneling in on this mystery. Yeah, it might honestly just be that didn't like the world building. And since so and much of fair. the article is world building. Like, it's yes. sort of thing where it's like, but you have to admit, fair. 5579 is almost a good article. I, I believe my comment is literally, I really wanted to like this. Not because I think it's terrible, but because I can't help but think it could have hit harder. 5579 is perfectly fine. I, I just read it and I was like, ah, oh, this should have been better for me, shouldn't have. And I had the same problem with 5005. These are both very good articles, and it's worth reading both of them. These are relatively, like, well-received articles. I think it's always interesting to see why someone may dislike one of them. Yeah, it's always fun to see who's got the hot takes. And on that note, thank you for tuning in to tonight's episode of Object Class Podcast. Thank you, and good night.